Section 36 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Elements Part 2nd Transcendental Logic Second Division Transcendental Dialectic Book 2 Of the Dialectical Procedure of Pure Reason Chapter 3 The Ideal of Pure Reason Sections 6 and 7 Recording by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, March 2007 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Of the Impossibility of a Physico-Theological Proof If, then, neither a pure conception nor the general experience of an existing being can provide a sufficient basis for the proof of the existence of the Deity, we can make the attempt by the only other mode that of grounding our argument upon a determinate experience of the phenomena of the present world, their constitution and disposition, and discover whether we can thus attain to a sound conviction of the existence of a supreme being. This argument we shall term the physico-theological argument. If it is shown to be insufficient, speculative reason cannot present us with any satisfactory proof of the existence of a being corresponding to our transcendental idea. It is evident from the remarks that have been made in the preceding sections that an answer to this question will be far from being difficult or unconvincing. For how can any experience be adequate with an idea? The very essence of an idea consists in the fact that no experience can ever be discovered congruent or adequate with it. The transcendental idea of a necessary and all-sufficient being is so immeasurably great, so high above all that is empirical, which is always conditioned, that we hope in vain to find materials in the sphere of experience sufficiently ample for our conception, and in vain seek the unconditioned among things that are conditioned, while examples, nay even guidance, is denied us by the laws of empirical synthesis. If the Supreme Being forms a link in the chain of empirical conditions, it must be a member of the empirical series, and, like the lower members which it precedes, have its origin in some higher member of the series. If, on the other hand, we disengage it from the chain, and cogitate it as an intelligible being apart from the series of natural causes, how shall reason bridge the abyss that separates the latter from the former? All laws respecting the regress from effects to causes, all synthetical additions to our knowledge relate solely to possible experience and the objects of the sensuous world, and apart from them are without significance. The world around us opens before our view so magnificent a spectacle of order, variety, beauty, and conformity to ends, that whether we pursue our observation into the infinity of space in the one direction, or into its inimitable divisions in the other, whether we regard the world in its greatest or its least manifestations, even after we have attained to the highest summit of knowledge which our weak minds can reach, we find that language in the presence of wonders so inconceivable has lost its force, and number its power to reckon, nay, even thought fails to conceive adequately, and our conception of the whole dissolves into an astonishment without power of expression. All the more eloquent that it is dumb. 
Everywhere around us we observe a chain of causes and effects, of means and ends, of death and birth, and, as nothing has entered of itself into the condition in which we find it, we are constantly referred to some other thing, which itself suggests the same inquiry regarding its cause, and thus the universe must sink into the abyss of nothingness, unless we admit that, besides this infinite chain of contingencies, there exists something that is primal and self-subsistent, something which, as the cause of this phenomenal world, secures its continuance and preservation. This highest caused, what magnitude shall we attribute to it? Of the content of the world we are ignorant. Still less can we estimate its magnitude by comparison with the sphere of the possible. But this supreme cause being a necessity of the human mind, what is there to prevent us from attributing to it such a degree of perfection as to place it above the sphere of all that is possible? This we can easily do, although only by the aid of the faint outline of an abstract conception, by representing this being to ourselves as containing in itself, as an individual substance, all possible perfection. A conception which satisfies that requirement of reason which demands parsimony in principles, which is free from self-contradiction, which even contributes to the extension of the employment of reason and experience, by means of the guidance afforded by this idea to order and system, and which in no respect conflicts with any law of experience. This argument always deserves to be mentioned with respect. It is the oldest, the clearest, and that most in conformity with the common reason of humanity. It animates the study of nature, as it itself derives its existence and draws ever new strength from that source. It introduces aims and ends into a sphere in which our observation could not of itself have discovered them, and extends our knowledge of nature by directing our attention to a unity, the principle of which lies beyond nature. This knowledge of nature again reacts upon this idea, its cause, and thus our belief in a divine author of the universe rises to the power of an irresistible conviction. For these reasons, it would be utterly hopeless to attempt to rob this argument of the authority it has always enjoyed. The mind, unceasingly elevated by these considerations, which, although empirical, are so remarkably powerful, and continually adding to their force, will not suffer itself to be depressed by the doubts suggested by subtle speculation. It tears itself out of this state of uncertainty the moment it casts a look upon the wondrous forms of nature and the majesty of the universe and rises from height to height, from condition to condition, till it has elevated itself to the supreme and unconditioned author of all. But although we have nothing to object to the reasonableness and utility of this procedure, but have rather to commend and encourage it, we cannot approve of the claims which this argument advances to demonstrative certainty and to a reception upon its own merits, apart from favor or support by other arguments nor can it injure the cause of morality to endeavor to lower the tone of the arrogant sophist and to teach him that modesty and moderation which are the properties of a belief that brings common content into the mind without prescribing to it an unworthy subjection i maintain then that the physico-theological argument is insufficient of itself to prove the existence of a supreme being that it must entrust this to the ontological argument to which it serves merely as an introduction, and that, consequently, this argument contains the only possible ground of proof 
possessed by speculative reason, close parentheses, for the existence of this being. The chief momenta in the physico-theological argument are as follows. 1. We observe in the world manifest signs of an arrangement full of purpose, executed with great wisdom, an argument in whole of a content indescribably various, and of an extent without limits. 2. This arrangement of means and ends is entirely foreign to the things existing in the world. It belongs to them merely as a contingent attribute. In other words, the nature of different things could not of itself, whatever means were employed, harmoniously tend towards certain purposes, were they not chosen and directed for these purposes by a rational and disposing principle, in accordance with certain fundamental ideas. 3. There exists, therefore, a sublime and wise cause, or several, which is not merely a blind, all-powerful nature, producing the beings and events which fill the world in unconscious fecundity, but a free and intelligent cause of the world. 4. The unity of this cause may be inferred from the unity of the reciprocal relation existing between the parts of the world, as portions of an artistic edifice, an inference which all our observation favors, and all principles of analogy support. In the above argument, it is inferred from the analogy of certain products of nature with those of human art, when it compels nature to bend herself to its purposes, as in the case of a house, a ship, or a watch, that the same kind of causality, namely understanding and will, resides in nature. It is also declared that the internal possibility of this freely acting nature, friends, which is the source of all art and perhaps also of human reason, is derivable from another and superhuman art, a conclusion which would perhaps be found incapable of standing the test of subtle transcendental criticism. But to neither of these opinions shall we at present object. We shall only remark that it must be confessed that, if we are to discuss the subject of cause at all, we cannot proceed more securely than with the guidance of the analogy subsisting between nature and such products of design, these being the only products whose cause and modes of organization are completely known to us. Reason would be unable to satisfy her own requirements if she passed from a causality which she does know to obscure and indemonstrable principles of explanation which she does not know. According to the physico-theological argument, the connection and harmony existing in the world evidence the contingency of the form merely, but not of the matter, that is, the substance of the world. To establish the truth of the latter opinion, it would be necessary to prove that all things would be in themselves incapable of this harmony and order unless they were, even as regards their substance, the product of a supreme wisdom. But this would require very different grounds of proof from those presented by the analogy within human art. This proof can at most, therefore, demonstrate the existence of an architect of the world whose efforts are limited by the capabilities of the material with which he works but not of a creator of the world, to whom all things are a subject. Thus the argument is utterly insufficient for the task before us, a demonstration of the existence of an all-sufficient being. If we wish to prove the contingency of the matter, we must have recourse to a transcendental argument, which the physico-theological was constructed expressly to avoid. We infer from the order and design visible in the universe, as a disposition of a thoroughly contingent character, 
the existence of a cause proportionate thereto. The conception of this cause must contain certain determining qualities, and it must therefore be regarded as the conception of a being which possesses all power, wisdom, and so on, in one word, all perfection, the conception, that is, of an all-sufficient being. For the predicates of very great, astonishing, or measurable power and excellence give us no determinate conception of the thing, nor do they inform us what the thing may be in itself. They merely indicate the relation existing between the magnitude of the object and the observer, who compares it with himself and with his own power of comprehension, and are the mere expressions of praise and reverence by which the object is either magnified or the observing subject depreciated in relation to the object. Where we have to do with the magnitude prends, of the perfection close prends, of a thing, we can discover no determinate conception except that which comprehends all possible perfection or completeness, and it is only the total prends, omnitudo, close prends, of reality which is completely determined in and through its conception alone. Now it cannot be expected that anyone will be bold enough to declare that he has a perfect insight into the relation which the magnitude of the world he contemplates bear, parens, in its extent, as well as in its content, close parens, to omnipotence, into that order and design in the world to the highest wisdom, and that of the unity of the world to the absolute unity of a supreme being. Physico-theology is therefore incapable of presenting a determinate conception of a supreme cause of the world, and is therefore insufficient as a principle of theology, a theology which is itself to be the basis of religion. The attainment of absolute totality is completely impossible on the path of empiricism. And yet this is the path pursued in the physico-theological argument. What means shall we employ to bridge the abyss? After elevating ourselves to admiration of the magnitude of the power, wisdom, and other attributes of the author of the world, and finding we can advance no further, we leave the argument on empirical grounds and proceed to infer the contingency of the world from the order and conformity to aims that are observable in it. From this contingency we infer, by the help of transcendental conceptions alone, the existence of something absolutely necessary, and, still advancing, proceed from the conception of the absolute necessity of the first cause to the completely determined or determining conception thereof, the conception of an all-embracing reality. Thus the physico-theological, failing in its undertaking, recurs in its embarrassment to the cosmological argument, and, as this is merely the ontological argument in disguise, it executes its design solely by the aid of pure reason, although it at first professed to have no connection with its faculty and to base its entire procedure upon experience alone. The physico-theologians have therefore no reason to regard with such contempt the transcendental mode of argument, and to look down upon it, with the conceit of clear-sighted observers of nature, as the brain cobweb of obscure speculatists. For if they reflect upon and examine their own arguments, they will find that, after following for some time the path of nature and experience, and discovering themselves no nearer the object, they suddenly leave this path and pass into the region of pure possibility where they hoped to reach upon the wings of ideas what had eluded all their empirical investigations. Gaining, as they think, a firm footing after this immense leap, they extend their determinate conception, 
into the possession of which they have come, they know not how, over the whole sphere of creation, and explain their ideal, which is entirely a product of pure reason, by illustrations drawn from experience, though in a degree miserably unworthy of the grandeur of the object, while they refuse to acknowledge that they have arrived at this cognition or hypothesis by a very different road from that of experience. Thus, the physico-theological is based upon the cosmological, and this upon the ontological proof of the existence of a supreme being. And as besides these three there is no other path open to speculative reason, the ontological proof, on the ground of pure conceptions of reason, is the only possible one. If any proof of a proposition so far transcending the empirical exercise of the understanding is possible at all. Section 7. Critique of all theology based upon speculative principles of reason. If by the term theology I understand the cognition of a primal being, that cognition is based either upon reason alone, friends, theologia rationalis, close friends, or upon revelation, open friends, theologia revelata, close friends. The former cogitates its object either by means of pure transcendental conceptions, as in ans originarium, realissimum, ans entium, and is termed transcendental theology, or by means of a conception derived from the nature of our own mind as a supreme intelligence, and must then be entitled natural theology. The person who believes in a transcendental theology alone is termed deist. He who acknowledges the possibility of a natural theology also, a theist. The former admits that we can cognize by pure reason alone the existence of a supreme being, but at the same time maintains that our conception of this being is purely transcendental, and that all we can say of it is that it possesses all reality, without being able to define it more closely. The second asserts that reason is capable of presenting us from the analogy with nature, with a more definite conception of this being, and that its operations, as the cause of all things, are the results of intelligence and free will. The former regards the supreme being as the cause of the world, whether by the necessity of his nature or as a free agent, is left undetermined. The latter considers this being as the author of the world. Transcendental theology aims either at inferring the existence of a supreme being from a general experience, without any closer reference to the world to which experience belongs, and in this case it is called cosmotheology, or it endeavors to cognize the existence of such a being, through mere conceptions, without the aid of experience, and then is termed ontotheology. Natural theology infers the attributes and the existence of an author of the world, from the constitution of the order and unity observable in the world, in which two modes of causality must be admitted to exist, those of nature and freedom. Thus it rises from this world to a supreme intelligence, either as a principle of all natural or of all moral order and perfection. In the former case it is termed physico-theology, in the latter ethical or moral theology. Footnote not theological ethics, for this science contains ethical laws which presuppose the existence of a supreme governor of the world, while moral theology, on the contrary, is the expression of a conviction of the existence of a supreme being founded upon ethical laws. 
End footnote. As we are wont to understand by the term God not merely an eternal nature, the operations of which are insensate and blind, but a supreme being who is the free and intelligent author of all things, and it is this latter view alone that can be of interest to humanity, we might, in strict rigor, deny to the deists any belief in God at all, and really regard him merely as a maintainer of the existence of a primal being or thing, the supreme cause of all other things. But, as no one ought to be blamed merely because he does not feel himself justified in maintaining a certain opinion, as if he altogether denied the truth and asserted its opposite, it is more correct, as it is less harsh, to say the deist believes in a god, the theist in a living god, parens, summa intelligentsia, close parens. We shall now proceed to investigate the sources of all these attempts of reason to establish the existence of a supreme being. It may be sufficient in this place to define theoretical knowledge or cognition as knowledge of that which is, and practical knowledge as knowledge of that which ought to be. In this view, the theoretical employment of reason is that by which I cognize a priori, friends, as necessary, close friends, that something is, while the practical is that by which I cognize a priori what ought to happen. Now, if it is indubitably certain though at the same time an entirely conditioned truth, that something is or ought to happen, either a certain determinate condition of this truth is absolutely necessary, or such a condition may be arbitrarily presupposed. In the former case, the condition is postulated, prins, per thesen, close prins, in the latter supposed, prins, per hypothesen, close prins, period. There are certain practical laws, those of morality, which are absolutely necessary. Now, if these laws necessarily presuppose the existence of some being as the condition of the possibility of their obligatory power, this being must be postulated, because the condition from which we reason to this determined condition is itself cognized a priori as absolutely necessary. We shall at some future time show that the moral laws not merely presuppose the existence of a supreme being, but also, as themselves absolutely necessary in a different relation, demand or postulate it, although only from a practical point of view. The discussion of this argument we postpone for the present. When the question relates merely to that which is, not that which ought to be, the condition which is presented in experience is always cogitated as contingent. For this reason, its condition cannot be regarded as absolutely necessary, but merely as relatively necessary, or rather as needful. The condition is in itself and a priori a mere arbitrary presupposition in aid of the cognition by reason of the conditioned. If, then, we are to possess a theoretical cognition of the absolute necessity of a thing, We cannot attain to this cognition otherwise than a priori by means of conceptions, while it is impossible in this way to cognize the existence of a cause which bears any relation to an existence given in experience. Theoretical cognition is speculative when it relates to an object or certain conceptions of an object which is not given and cannot be discovered by means of experience. It is opposed to the cognition of nature which concerns only those objects or predicates which can be presented in a possible experience. The principle that everything which happens, 
parens, the empirically contingent close parens, must have a cause, is a principle of the cognition of nature, but not of speculative cognition. For, if we change it into an abstract principle, and deprive it of its reference to experience and the empirical, we shall find that it cannot with justice be regarded any longer as a synthetical proposition, and that it is impossible to discover any modes of transition from that which exists to something entirely different, termed cause. Nay, more, the conception of a cause likewise that of the contingent loses, in this speculative mode of employing it, all significance, for its objective reality and meaning are comprehensible from experience alone. When from the experience of the universe and the things in it the existence of a cause of the universe is inferred, reason is proceeding not in the natural but in the speculative method. For the principle of the former announces not that things themselves are substances, but only that which happens or their states, as empirically contingent, have a cause. The assertion that the existence of a substance itself is contingent is not justified by experience. It is the assertion of a reason employing its principles in a speculative manner. If, again, I infer from the form of the universe, from the way in which all things are connected and act and react upon each other, the existence of a cause entirely distinct from the universe, this would again be a judgment of purely speculative reason, because the object in this case, the cause, can never be an object of possible experience. In both these cases, the principle of causality which is valid only in the field of experience, useless and even meaningless beyond this region, would be diverted from its proper destination. Now I maintain that all attempts of reason to establish a theology by aid of speculation alone are fruitless, that the principles of reason as applied to nature do not conduct us to any theological truths, and consequently that a rational theology can have no existence unless it is founded upon the laws of morality. For all synthetical principles of the understanding are valid only as imminent in experience, while the cognition of a supreme being necessitates their being employed transcendentally, and of this the understanding is quite incapable. If the empirical law of causality is to conduct us to a supreme being, this being must belong to the chain of empirical objects, in which case it would be, like all phenomena, itself conditioned. If the possibility of passing the limits of experience can be admitted by means of the dynamical law of the relation of effect to its cause, what kind of conception shall we obtain by this procedure? Certainly not the conception of a supreme being, because experience never presents us with the greatest of all possible effects, and it is only an effect of this character that could witness to the existence of a corresponding cause. If, for the purpose of fully satisfying the requirements of reason, we recognize her right to assert the existence of a perfect and absolutely necessary being, this can be admitted only from favor, and cannot be regarded as a result or irresistible demonstration. The physico-theological proof may add weight to others, if other proofs there are, by connecting speculation with experience, but in itself it rather prepares the mind for theological cognition and gives it a right and natural direction, then establishes a sure foundation for theology. It is now perfectly evident that transcendental questions admit only of transcendental answers, those presented a priori by pure conceptions without the least empirical admixture. 
but the question in the present case is evidently synthetical. It aims at the extension of our cognition beyond the bounds of experience. It requires an assurance respecting the existence of a being corresponding with the idea in our minds to which no experience can ever be adequate. Now it has been abundantly proved that all a priori synthetical cognition is possible only as the expression of the formal conditions of a possible experience, and that the validity of all principles depends upon their imminence in the field of experience, that is, their relation to objects of empirical cognition or phenomena. Thus all transcendental procedure in reference to speculative theology is without result. If anyone prefers doubting the conclusiveness of the proofs of our analytic to losing the persuasion of the validity of these old and time-honored arguments, he at least cannot decline answering the question, how can he pass the limits of all possible experience by the help of mere ideas? If he talks of new arguments, or of improvement upon old arguments, I request him to spare me. There is certainly no great choice in this sphere of discussion, as all speculative arguments must at last look for support to the ontological and I have, therefore, very little to fear from the argumentative fecundity of the dogmatical defenders of a non-sensuous reason. Without looking upon myself as a remarkably combative person, I shall not decline the challenge to detect a fallacy and destroy the pretensions of every attempt of speculative theology. And yet, the hope of better fortune never deserts those who are accustomed to the dogmatical mode of procedure. I shall therefore restrict myself to the simple and equitable demand that such reasoners will demonstrate, from the nature of the human mind as well as from that of other sources of knowledge, how we are to proceed to extend our cognition completely a priori and to carry it to that point where experience abandons us, and no means exists of guaranteeing the objective reality of our conceptions. In whatever way the understanding may have attained to a conception, the existence of the object of the conception cannot be discovered in it by analysis, because the cognition of the existence of the object depends upon the object's being posited and given in itself apart from the conception. But it is utterly impossible to go beyond our conception without the aid of experience, which presents to the mind nothing but phenomena, or to attain by the help of mere conceptions to a conviction of the existence of new kinds of objects or supernatural beings. But although pure speculative reason is far from sufficient to demonstrate the existence of a supreme being, it is of the highest utility in correcting our conception of this being, on the supposition that we can attain to the cognition of it by some other means, in making it consistent with itself and with all other conceptions of intelligible objects, clearing it from all that is incompatible with the conception of an ansumum and eliminating from it all limitations or admixtures of empirical elements. Transcendental theology is still, therefore, notwithstanding its objective insufficiency, of importance in a negative respect. It is useful as a test of the procedure of reason when engaged with pure ideas, no other than a transcendental standard being in this case admissible. For if, from a practical point of view, the hypothesis of a supreme and all-sufficient being is to maintain its validity without opposition, it must be of the highest importance to define this conception in a correct and rigorous manner, as the transcendental conception of a necessary being to eliminate all phenomenal elements, prens, anthropomorphism is most extended signification, close prens, and at the same time to overflow all contradictory assertions, 
be they atheistic, deistic, or anthropomorphic. This is, of course, very easy. As the same arguments which demonstrated the inability of human reason to affirm the existence of a supreme being must be alike sufficient to prove the invalidity of its denial. For it is impossible to gain from the pure speculation of reason demonstration that there exists no supreme being, as the ground of all that exists, or that this being possesses none of those properties which we regard as analogical with the dynamic qualities of a thinking being, or that, as the anthropomorphists would have us believe, it is subject to all the limitations which sensibility opposes upon these intelligences which exist in the world of experience. A supreme being is therefore, for the speculative reason, a mere ideal, though a faultless one, a conception which perfects and crowns the system of human cognition, but the objective reality of which can neither be proved nor disproved by pure reason. If this defect is ever supplied by a moral theology, the problematic transcendental theology which has proceeded will have been at least serviceable as demonstrating the mental necessity existing for the conception by the complete determination of it which it has furnished, and the ceaseless testing of the conclusions of a reason often deceived by sense, and not always in harmony with its own ideas. The attributes of necessity, infinitude, unity, existence apart from the world, parens, and not as a world soul, close parens, eternity, parens, free from conditions of time, close parens, omnipresence, free from conditions of space, close brands, omnipotence and others are pure transcendental predicates, and thus the accurate conception of a supreme being, which every theology requires, is furnished by transcendental theology alone. End of section 36